This episode of the ER is brought to you by Russia Direct. Join the more than 1 million people around the globe who rely on Russia Direct for exclusive expertise and analysis of Russia's role in the world. Go to www.russia-direct.org today to learn more. Hillary Clinton had learned how to fail. She failed several times early on. She stumbled and she stumbled and she got attacked and she stumbled again and she got back up again. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. Today I'm in Palo Alto with FP columnist Corey Shaki, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. Also joining us from D.C. is FP contributor Rosa Brooks, senior Future of War fellow at the New America Foundation and professor at Georgetown University. Finally, we have a new guest that I'm pleased to welcome to the show, Mark Landler, White House correspondent at the New York Times and author of Alter Egos, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and the Twilight Struggle Over American Power terrific book, which I recommend everybody immediately go out and get. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, the following conversation took place. Okay, welcome to another episode of the ER. We're continuing a conversation that we began last week with Mark Landler of the New York Times and Rosa and Corey, the two hired assassins who are always here with us each and every week. Now, Mark, your book was called Alter Egos, and it spoke of two um, uh, uh, central egos, I suppose, Uh, one being that of Barack Obama, who we eviscerated and who is now consigned to the dustbin of history, if you listen to the last uh, podcast. Uh, But more interesting to our our viewers who are not interested in what happened a minute ago um, is what's about to happen. And Donald Trump is about to lose the election after he gets the nomination of the Republican Party. And unless, you know, something really stunning happens, Hillary Clinton is going to be the next president of the United States. And you've studied her up close in the State Department, uh, working as a White House correspondent, and now writing this book. And so, you know, she is an interesting character as a presidential candidate. Most U.S. presidential candidates have no foreign policy chops at all. Five out of the last six have had none effectively, with the exception of George H.W. Bush. Uh, And she would be the first president of the United States uh, who had been a secretary of state since James Buchanan. Uh, So uh, uh, do you feel, based on having done this book, that she brings any special qualities to the office to go with all that experience? Well... You know, I think what she brings um, is, in some ways, qualities that are very familiar in presidents uh, prior to Barack Obama. I think Barack Obama was, in some ways, the big outlier in how he viewed America's role in the world and the use of military force and the wisdom of intervention. Um, In a way, what she brings is almost an instinctive fingertip feel for why the U.S. can and should do certain things in the world. And she also, I think, in addition to her own experience as a New York senator and as Secretary of State, had a very valuable experience as First Lady watching her husband wrestle with a lot of these questions, sometimes successfully, uh, although belatedly in the Balkans, sometimes uh, failing to act as in Rwanda. Um, So I do think that she has a, a set of instincts that 
I think the president, uh, the President Obama, didn't have, and I'm not sure he really acquired over the course of his seven and a half years in office. Uh, so I do think she'd be an unusual person uh, or unusually well-qualified person to come in as a foreign policy president. I just want to say, because I can't resist, um, I'm glad you're as confident as you are about her election prospects because I, I'm not convinced. I mean, you know, everyone said that he'd never defeat 15 reasonably well-qualified Republicans, and he did destroy them one after the other on his march to the nomination. So I, I think I just have this disquieting sense that it's not as a, much of a sure bet as you do. But Well, just... that is because I have been wrong from the beginning. I have been wrong repeatedly. I am a Washington professional, and I know that the first rule is not to uh, learn from my mistakes. Gotcha. The, uh, reinforcing Mark's point... Uh, let me say two things. First, Donald Trump as president would be a disaster for these United States. Second— You can tell she's a Republican. Only Republicans say things like these United States. <laughs> well, let's say, um, distinguish them from those other United States, David. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, the second thing is that Quinnipiac's latest poll has Clinton and Trump tied nationally. So even though he is less popular than bed lice and dengue fever and whatever else, he is tied with somebody who actually, as Mark persuasively argued, is well qualified on foreign policy to be president of the United States. I, I do think disastrously for the country he could win this election. Okay. If any of the people listening to this podcast are old enough to vote, Take Corey's message to heart. Donald Trump, you know, one of the things that I think that the media has done wrong with regard to Donald Trump is give him too much credibility to go along with the too much airtime. This is a racist, misogynist creep who is not qualified to be president of the United States by virtue of the fact that not only does he have no government experience, but his businesses have failed serially uh, and have engaged in awful practices, which I am sure are going to come out, probably at the hand of Mitt Romney or somebody else who really, really hates this guy. And that's why I think he's going to lose. But let's, let's leave Donald Trump uh, uh, aside in the gutter from which he came. Um, Rosa, as I listen to Mark's analysis, I'm beginning to wonder if what the title of his book, Alter Egos, means is that one of the two people that is focus of the book was unqualified to be president, and one of them is qualified to be president. Uh, I, perhaps we'll turn to Mark on that later, but I find it more fun to interpret these things <laughs> right while the Let's author is Mark sitting two feet away. Let's not give Mark an opportunity to weigh in on yeah, this. Right. I think we should. Okay, well, th that's an excellent There's point. There's really no need. Rosa, <laughs> there is no need. Keep him out of this. Yeah. Rosa, what does Mark's book mean? <laughs> Well, Mark book, Mark's book probably means that those of us who voted for Barack Obama during the 2008 Democratic primaries probably screwed up, I think is what it means. And I, I myself, ding, ding, being ding. one of those people, came to that uh, rather reluctant and unpleasant conclusion uh, a few years back. Um, you know, Hillary, Hillary, Barack Obama was a very likable candidate. Uh, he was a fantastic candidate. He seemed engaged and warm and open and secure and introspective in, in ways that Hillary did not. She seemed like she had a, you know, a, a hard shellac shell around herself. She seemed fake. Everything seemed scripted. Um, 
and and you know I've come to believe, and I, I actually wrote about this uh, for Foreign Policy a couple years back, that Hillary Clinton had learned how to fail. She failed several times early on. She stumbled and she stumbled and she got attacked and she stumbled again and she got back up again. Barack Obama never failed really in any meaningful way uh, before he became president, and he never he never did learn that he wasn't perfect and that he didn't always get it right. And she perhaps actually overlearned the lesson that she wasn't perfect and it made her overly cautious. But I, I, I've come to have a lot of respect for the fact that she just picked herself up every time and tried again. And she, un, you know, unlike Barack Obama in our last podcast, we were talking about the ways in which he seems like he really doesn't like being president. He doesn't like politics. He doesn't want to do it. He does it grudgingly, whereas Clinton is kind of you know, whatever else you might say about her, she is a hell of a hard worker and she has really put her nose to the grindstone, not necessarily being inspired, but kind of getting the job done, even when you can tell she hates it, you know, and and I she came she she if she is elected and I know you don't want to go back to Donald Trump and his chances. So let's just say if Hillary Clinton's elected, you know, I think that she obviously will bring to the job uh, both a record of successes and a record of failures, and that is not a bad thing. You know, she has she has had the opportunity to learn from some significant screw-ups, and she shows some signs of actually having learned, you know, and, and I she has done the hard work to figure out how do you make the unwieldy executive branch function? How do you make the unwieldy Congress function? Uh, and that's that's vital to just getting anything done. You know, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, if you don't know how which levers to push, you can't get anything done. I think, and I think that, you know, and this is something that obviously Mark can speak to in much more detail. Uh, you know, she's, she's, she's not going to be exciting. Um, she's not going to be perfect, but she's going to get a lot of work done. You know, you, you make an excellent point. And again, Thank you, audience should write down the point, which is there is only one thing in Washington that you don't need any experience to do really, really big, and that is failing. In fact, there's an inverse proportion. The less experience you have, the more likely you are to fail, and we've seen uh, evidence of that recently. As Rosa points out, Mark, Hillary Clinton has an enormous amount of experience. The first lady experience in that particular White House, uh, I think, is underestimated by many. Mm -hmm. um, uh, her experience in the Senate, her experience as Secretary of State, her experience having run for president before, the, her experience as uh, uh, working uh, 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 close to the, the wheels of government in a state, all of these things give her some perspective on this. Um, what does her learning curve look like to you? Well, I mean, I guess what interested me when I sort of went back and reminded myself of her history is – that you know she had these 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 experiences and i think you're right to sort of zero in on the first lady time because that's where she i think saw bill clinton who at the time he came in was a young relatively inexperienced president not as inexperienced as obama but certainly on the foreign front he was would be in one of those categories as a president with little experience and she watched him kind of wrestle with how do you do intervention when do you intervene 
how do you how do you do, is it do you try to create a doctrine to guide your decisions or do you make them on a kind of a piecemeal basis um and uh and so i think she learned a lot as first lady and and one of the things that interested me toward the end of her time as first lady uh an interesting anecdote that i think hasn't been reported before um where uh, she was sitting quietly on Air Force One watching Sandy Berger and Bruce Riddell, two members of Bill Clinton's national security team, discussing with him what to do about Saddam Hussein's latest, um, you know, complete repudiation of U.N. weapons inspectors. And and Bill was equivocating and didn't want to do anything and was worried about his personal scandals, which were well underway at that point. And he finally left the cabin um, and walked up to his stateroom to get some sleep. And Hillary had been leafing through a magazine and not saying a word during this entire exchange. And after the president left, Riddell and Berger kept arguing, and she finally put the magazine down and said, don't let him get away without doing anything this time. Um, so I just sort of felt like that was interesting. She didn't say another word in the entire exchange, but she had soaked up the entire conversation and was completely, um, you know, had mastered all the details of what was on the table. Um, and, you know, that's an experience Obama never had before he was president. He never watched another president wrestle with these kinds of issues. And in the case of the Balkans, as a few people pointed out to me, he wasn't even paying attention to the entire episode because he was a professor at the University of Chicago and launching his career as a politician in Illinois during all those years. So I, I think that's kind of where the learning curve came. In. You know, also then when she was senator, um, she befriended all these generals. I wrote a, a magazine piece about, uh, you know, sort of her relationship with generals. And, and I'm sure some folks on the left will be appalled by this and, and, and scared and alarmed that she spends time with people like Jack Keane, who's a former army chief of staff. But I mean, these are guys who've spent years in all kinds of difficult situations and making very difficult decisions. She had a lot of time for these guys. And I think because I did follow her around the world for a few years, she listens. She doesn't actually talk. She just listens and lets these people tell them about their experiences and their judgments. And I think that's where the learning curve comes in. And it doesn't mean she's going to make every decision, right? Of course she won't. She'll make continue to make mistakes because in foreign policy, it seems to me every other decision you make ends up being the wrong one. But at least she brings a huge wealth, a huge storehouse of accumulated insights and wisdom that, that President Obama simply doesn't have. Yeah, no, and I think that what you're talking about, the listening, is ex extremely important. It's essential. You need to have intellectual humility to be a leader because you need to be able to go and take in other views and then synthesize your view from it. And that requires real application when you get to a certain level. When we talked about Barack Obama in last week's episode, the thrust of it was that he has very little intellectual humility. He may be smart and he may have intellectual curiosity, but he doesn't have intellectual humility. Having watched Hillary Clinton for a long time as you have, um, this is a studious person whose first in instinct with regard to any issue is to get as much information about it as she can. But, Corey, you're a student of these things as well. And, you know, Mark has touched upon something here, which I think is, is kind of interesting. And it may be obvious on its face, but particularly uh, in the area of foreign policy, although you could broaden this, uh, it seems almost as though some sort of apprenticeship is necessary, studying a president up close and in action to actually do the job well. The last person to have that kind of apprenticeship was also the last person 
to, I, I think, be an effective foreign policy president was, was George H.W. Bush. Prior to that, the president, and you may have a lot of problems with his presidency, was probably the next most successful one was Richard Nixon, who had been a vice president. Prior to that, it was Dwight Eisenhower, who had played a unique role in the military, working with presidents. Prior to that, you could say it was Harry Truman, who had been a vice president, or Franklin Roosevelt, who'd been an assistant secretary of the Navy at a time when that was a, there were very few people in such a senior job, worked with the administration in addition to being a government governor. Prior to that, you know, we could go on, but Teddy Roosevelt was a vice president. There are a lot of people who play this kind of role, and yet the American people on a regular basis don't seem to think experience matters in this job. And I would like you to straighten them out. <laughs> uh, yes, I agree with the arc of your narrative, David, that experience is a good thing. And that I'm going. Tend, I'm really going out on a limb. Yeah, on that and one. people tend to make better decisions, especially when they are dealing with complex, difficult to affect uh, circumstances. Uh, and you are also accurate that the American people don't care. Um, one of the reasons these United States—that's for you, Rosa—are um, bad at strategy. By the way, generally, the other United States, even in this neighborhood, Rosa, is the United States of Mexico. Um, which is the name of that country. So let's not be so up on our high horse Hey, there hey, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, um, to David's point, uh, not about the United States of Mexico, but about experience and the fact that, that Americans tend not to value foreign policy experience when we choose our leaders, you can see the correlation over time that we care about that experience when we're worried about the world and we really think it can affect us. But for the most part, because we are so incredibly fortunate by geography, by the nature of our neighbors to the north and south, and a hundred other factors, we have such a wide margin of error that Americans tend to undervalue those qualities when they choose a president, unless we are at war in a way where we could actually lose our freedom or or have our body politic disrupted in a serious way. So that is how, actually, to Mark's earlier point, we could end up with an inexperienced, vile narcissist with a giant sun-dried tomato on his head as the next <laughs> president of the United States. <laughs> That's really kind of... Yes, Rosa. Well, well okay. I'm, I'm I, not I gonna, hear. I was I, now trying, we've I done this long myself, enough that when I hear tomato is not the right <laughs> image, and I was trying to think of what cheese whiz or something like that. I think is maybe a little bit better, but that that's really not my fundamental point. Um, <laughs> Mark, do you have a better metaphor? <laughs> I'm thinking of the one that better did, visual. I think uh, wasn't it Seth Meyer who said he had like a sort of a, a, a dried fox on his head during the White House <laughs> correspondence dinner. I seem to remember that. I think it might have been Seth Meyer who said that. Dried fox, <laughs> is, fox. Is, is is pretty good. Okay. Whether you're interested in U.S.-Russia relations, Russian policy in the Middle East, Russia's view of the Arctic, or more. Russia Direct offers in-depth research and reports from high-profile international experts on a wide range of important and newsworthy topics. Make Russia Direct your first stop to understand what the news and trends around Russia mean for a broad range of stakeholders around the world. Go to www.russia-direct.org today to learn more. You know, okay, so so let me let me say something that I that I I hope for if there's a Hillary Clinton administration and something that I fear. 
Um, here's the hope, and this this actually relates back to our last podcast, which focused on Ben Rose and President Obama, as our as our six hundred and fifty three listeners will recall. Um, you know, we, none of whom, by the way, not a single one of those listeners is a Trump supporter. Right. God damn it. Um, so we were talking about President Obama's over-reliance on a small and not terribly uh, adept or nice group of people in his inner circle. Um, one thing that – here's the hope about Hillary Clinton is that having been a cabinet secretary, that she will be more aware if she becomes president uh, – of how important it is to have a departments and agencies that mean something, where you actually use them, you actually draw on their expertise, you actually listen to them. You know, that having had the experience of trying to break in to policy discussions that the White House inner circle is not all that interested in having her thoughts on, even though she was a very experienced Secretary of State, that she will run things differently and that she will have a uh, manage the quote-unquote interagency process in a way that is more uh, more respectful and aware of the fact that there are a lot of people who really do know something out there and that she can use their help, as any president could. Um, that's my hope. My fear is that Hillary Clinton has had a long record of having a very uh, protective and, and not very friendly inner circle herself, uh, having a staff that's characterized by a lot of infighting and very... Uh, unpleasant to anybody outside that circle who doesn't toe the party line. And, you know, countering that hope, I think, is a, is a real fear that that's been her path and people don't tend to change. And if we have a Hillary Clinton presidency and she falls into the exact same trap she's always fallen into in terms of her own staff that Barack Obama fell into, that she will, despite her greater experience, end up making a lot of the same mistakes. Okay, well, just to maintain the illusion that sometimes inadvertently journalism or something that is journalism light here happens on this podcast, I would like now to turn, I will turn to Corey and then I will turn to Mark and Rosa, you too may chime in. Uh, please list what you consider to be the, the defects that Hillary Clinton has revealed over the course of her career. Um, my favorite... Um moment of Secretary Clinton's presidential campaign so far was when she admitted that she's not actually very a very good political candidate, but uh, asked for people to have confidence that she would be good at being president. And I'm even a little bit more optimistic than Rosa. I, I think the possibility exists that Having come from the Congress, she has a richer appreciation that mostly what the president does when you have a successful presidency is the unglamorous horse trading, bargaining with Congress to get legislation that advances the country. And I think Secretary Clinton is just the kind of boring, shoulder-to-the-wheel kind of uh, politician who might actually serve the country pretty well by focusing her efforts on working with Congress to get stuff done. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You were supposed to talk about Mark, defects. Mark, right. This is our, our, our House Republican. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> sounded like a quasi-endorsement. Yeah, it did. Anyway. It's all relative. And that was, yeah. that was her critique. Okay, so okay. Mark. So, you, so <laughs> I... I that, I was warming up. Oh, yeah, um, <laughs> that was some warm-up. <laughs> so I think her biggest defect is that she doesn't actually get so much done. 
right, when she was Secretary of State. Smart power was supposed to come to the fore. Remember that great plan for the transition to civilian leadership in Iraq, which was not in evidence ever, right? Um, and the planning that the State Department did for the so-called transition in Iraq from military leadership to civilian leadership was a catastrophe, and she paid no attention to it, although it could conceivably be the thing she most should have been judged by in her time as Secretary of State, because it was clear that the president wanted to end our military involvement in Iraq. Let's take the civilian surge in Afghanistan, which also doesn't materialize. Or we could point to, um, right, all this business about smart power, about how the State Department needed to run a QDDR and build the institutional capacity. She did none of that when she was Secretary of State. Okay, that is exactly the kind of unsubstantiated calumny I was looking for. for <laughs> um, but, it was substantiated <laughs> calumny. Well, let's turn to Mark, who was covering this and writing about it. This is your chance. Well, Name, I, you know, Hillary's top three defects that worry you. Well, I think the number one defect, and I, I actually think that what Corey just said about Iraq and the civilian surge is very interesting, and we can talk more about that. But I think her biggest defect to me is her just sort of um, enduring paranoia and suspicion and lack of transparency, um, which manifested itself in the absolutely horrendous decision to use her own email address, which was clearly designed to avoid future FOIA requests. And and what puzzles me about that a little bit, not but not too much given her history, is that the the one time in her in her career, in her public career, that she actually had really good press was as Secretary of State, which was also the one time that she actually had a fairly open, regular, non-dysfunctional relationship with the reporters who were covering her. And it was because she sort of concluded early on that we weren't going to write about scandals uh, and um, and Bill Clinton's private life. And as a result, she felt she could trust us. And it paid these enormous dividends. And, and I wondered at the end of that experience whether she would try to kind of put her relationship with the media on a different plane, and, and she didn't. She reverted absolutely to type and is now so profoundly inaccessible to the people who cover her campaign that I actually think she's doing herself an enormous disservice. Um, so I think there's that sort of enduring suspicion. And sadly, I think the presidency will not be a job where she feels like, as she was a secretary of state, she can try to cultivate a different relationship with those who cover her. I think she will remain in this kind of defensive crouch uh, for the whole time she's in that job if she gets there. And I think that could end up being very dangerous for her and undo some of the good work that she might accomplish. Um, uh, to go on Corey's point, though, very quickly, I, I think that, you know, she made a lot of decisions as Secretary of State based on calculations about um, whether there was enough upside for her. And she did so as someone who knew that she was going to run for president someday. And so on Iraq, for example, I think she was delighted when Obama gave the Iraq portfolio to Joe Biden because she thought it was a loser. Um, but I, that didn't mean that she should not continue to work for the right outcomes. And I, there was a telling anecdote in Chris Hill's book where Hillary makes her first visit to Baghdad when he's ambassador and he and she's leaving and says goodbye to him and says, you know, I, you know, I can't wait to stay in touch. And, and that was sort of the last time they ever had a substantive conversation when he was in, in Baghdad. Um, and likewise, with the civilian surge, I mean, what I what I concluded in the civilian surge 
is that she was so eager to ally herself with Petraeus and McChrystal and Gates um, that, you know, Sarah Chase gave me a quote for the book where she said she over-militarized the analysis of the problem and that what her job should have been in the Afghan debate was to point out the necessity of reaching out to Pakistan and trying to turn Pakistan into a less meddlesome neighbor, of trying to establish some kind of workable relationship with Karzai. But because she was so eager to kind of line up with the military guys, um, there wasn't anyone in the debate making that case strongly enough. Um, and, you know, I think that was a, a fault. I mean, I, we can talk about the Middle East peace process where she also decided to keep it at arm's length. I'm not sure how I come down on that because John Kerry didn't keep it at arm's length and the outcome was terrible. Um, but, you know, in general, there was just a lot of calculation in her approach to the job. Obviously, when you're president, that's different. Um, and probably it's different on the Middle East peace process. You you make dis- decisions on a different basis. But I think that was a flaw of hers, and that's why her time as Secretary of State was not all that productive. Okay, Rosa, I'm going to have the, you'll have the last word here, and I don't want to do anything to damage the prospect of you uh, becoming, say, Under Secretary of Defense for Sardonic Affairs. Um, they should but, create but that position for me. Do, they should create that position for you. Um, but uh, w- w- what's your take on this uh, issue? I, I think I think that Mark and Corey have have really said it all. Uh, you know, I oh my God. <laughs> spoken like a woman preparing for confirmation. If here. nominated, well I will not no, serve. No, I, I mean, I I, I I don't I don't have much to add except except that I think that that's right. She. And it kind of breaks my heart to watch her in a way because she has so much going for her in so many ways. You know, she's really smart. She's really experienced. She's really hardworking. And yet she is so good at kind of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory in so many ways by being prickly in ways that are unnecessary and that end up turning potential friends into into not necessarily enemies but into people who are not trying to help her out anymore. You know, that she she's so good at – turning goodwill into indifference or enmity. And and that does break my heart because I actually do think she would be a pretty good president if she could break away from her defensive crouch, you know, and and that would be my advice to her if she had any interest in taking my advice. And there's never been any evidence that she is, but, you know, would be to... it's, it's impossible when you say this to people because they don't know what it means, but, you know, to stop being so defensive. And I, I thought that about the whole email stuff, too. You know, if she had said at the very beginning when the email business broke, said, I really screwed up. It seemed like a good idea at the time. We didn't think this through. Boy, was that dumb. I'm so sorry. That would have almost ended it, you know, and yet she she doesn't know how to not get defensive, not get closed mouth, not give out information sort of morsel by morsel like teeth are being pulled. And she ends up looking so bad even when there's nothing really bad there. Uh, So, Hillary, I I hope you can get less defensive and I hope that you become president. But like Mark, uh, maybe for another episode, I am not unfortunately all that confident that the guy with the dead fox on his head might not still somehow prevail. Davy Crockett is going to. W- oh no, that's <laughs> that's that's a different that's guy. A rac- that's a dead raccoon. That's a raccoon. That's I had a dead one of raccoon. Those hats. Did, did you? Oh, that's a picture that we'd love to post on our website. <laughs> Davy Crockett yeah. refused Davey, Davey to Crockett. endorse Andrew Jackson's um, 
Indian policy and thought he was a tyrant and headed off for Texas rather than be part of it. And died at the Alamo. I am so delighted that we got in this hit on Andrew Jackson's awful Indian policies, which I know our listeners are interested in. I am going to wrap this up, though, with a contrarian thought. Right now, everybody who talks about or many of the people who talk about this election cycle talk about how dysfunctional it is, how awful it is that we have a candidate like Donald Trump who is so um, uh, inexperienced and so repulsive in all of his methods and so close uh, to embracing the ways of fascism. Uh, and we talk about Hillary Clinton's lackluster campaign. But I have a slightly different narrative. And the slightly different narrative is based on actually what I think the arithmetic is. And, you know, if only 10 million people have voted for Donald Trump, that's uh, approximately um, 3% of the American electorate. It's not uh, the American people, uh, and it's maybe 10% of the electorate. It's not that big a group. Uh, and I think he's got a lot of demerits against him, and I think he's going to lose. And what does it mean that he's going to lose? Well, it means that for the first time in 240 years, the United States will elect a woman president, that this democracy will actually select somebody from the majority population to lead it, and thus will reverse 240 years of misogyny, sexism uh, in the highest office. <laughs> right, and we at can least establish a matriarchy. In, in, uh, yeah, at least in some way. It will be progress. We will also, if this is the case, as noted earlier, be electing the first secretary of state to hold this job, the first person who had held the top foreign policy job to hold this job since the middle of the 19th John century. John Quincy Adams. Well, there were a lot in the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, the last, right? uh, no, James no, Buchanan. J- James Buchanan. James <gasps> Buchanan. Which is not a great Thank president. Thank you, gentlemen, for correcting me. Uh, yeah, and, and by the way, I mentioned it at the beginning. Thanks for listening. But in any event... <laughs> Um, the, uh, we, we all got bored the, during that part, David. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> okay, well, let me get back to this. Okay, so for the first time in 240 years, we'll elect a woman. Somebody is experienced in foreign policy. Somebody with a lot of experience in Washington, more than many of the recent candidates, certainly more diverse and well-rounded. And in fact, what may happen in 50 years or 100 years, as historians look back on this period, they will say, gee, here is a country with a history of misogyny, sexism, racism, and all sorts of other things that in 2008 elected an African-American man as president, in 2016 elected a woman as president, and all of a sudden this electorate that we think are a bunch of boobs because they're supporting Donald Trump or they're supporting some other nutty thing uh, actually is going to be looked at as perhaps the most enlightened and progressive electorate in the history of the United States of America. And that is very well how this story might end, and it is not at all in keeping with the general narrative right now. That's why all of you out there, both of you out there, listen (laughs) to this podcast, because you get these kind of insights. Um, Share them with your friends. Maybe next week they'll listen, and soon we'll have a minion for our podcast. For those of you who don't know what a minion is, again, Google it. Um, I would like to thank Mark Landler for joining us, and I hope that despite his experience, he will come back again. Thank you, Um, David. I had a great time. uh, Okay, good. Well, we were delighted to have you, and I wish I could have been there, but I'm out here in sunny California with Corey, and it's a really great place to be. And, uh, Rosa, you should come out here and try it sometime. Nobody ever invites me to California. People only invite me to places like Detroit. (laughs) Corey, invite her out here. She's going to be Undersecretary (laughs) of Defense for Sardonic Affairs. (laughs) 
Rosa really has cornered the market on the great titles in our profession. And yes, Rosa, you have a standing invitation to bring your wit and wisdom out to Stanford. Thank you. And as a last reminder, as soon as this podcast ends, turn your car into the nearest bookstore and buy Mark Landler's wonderful book. book. Buy his book. Not actually into the nearest bookstore, just into its parking lot. Yeah, just the parking lot. Yeah, no, it's, it's important to clarify. Some of these people have just started driving. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Thank you, folks, David. for listening. We'll see you again. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.